This afternoon we've come to Lord's Day 45. Where we confess a brief summary of what God's Word teaches about prayer. Lord's Day 45, I'll read that with you now. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. Moreover, God will give his grace and the Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by him? First, we must from the heart call upon the one true God only, who has revealed himself in his word for all that he has commanded us to pray. Second, we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Third, we must rest on this firm foundation that although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? All the things we need for body and soul as included in the prayer which Christ our Lord himself taught us. follows that prayer that we are so familiar with. Congregation, after the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing from Psalm 138. Psalm 138, 1 and 2, after the sermon. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, We learn from Scripture and from our confession that prayer is a vital part of the Christian life. Paul, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, urges believers to pray without ceasing. And in Ephesians 6, pray in the Spirit at all times with every kind of prayer and petition. Christians are to be people of prayer. But that doesn't come naturally, does it? Our human nature rebels against doing that, against seeking help. And we also have another enemy who would not want us to pray. Satan would like nothing more than that you and I would be prayerless Christians because he fears the prayers of the saints. He loves a prayerless believer. He loves a prayerless church. He has nothing to fear from prayerless work, from prayerless Bible study, from prayerless religion. I read somewhere that Satan laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Satan believes in the power of prayer. What about you, congregation? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Are we people of prayer? Well, I've summarized the sermon with the following theme. Christians are people who pray. We'll consider three things. The need for prayer, the manner of prayer, and the effectiveness of prayer. One of the things that we often ask ourselves when we study the topic of prayer is why, even, why do we even have to pray? After all, if God is sovereign, does it make sense to pray? 
If God knows everything, He controls all things sovereignly, nothing happens without His will. There's nothing that can stop Him from fulfilling His predetermined plan. Then how can prayer be of benefit? But we should be actually phrasing the question differently. Because think of it this way. How effective would it be to pray to a God who is not sovereign? How helpful would it be to pray to a God who is not almighty? Of course, that's a rhetorical question we could all answer. And from the scriptures, congregation, we know that God is sovereign. We know that he has a foreordained plan. Nothing can prevent him from accomplishing that which he has determined to do. But then to our human way of thinking, we're tempted to think that, that while well, God is going to act regardless of our prayers, isn't he? You see, one of the great temptations of faith in a sovereign and omnipotent God is that prayer is superfluous, that it's not necessary. The congregation, this is a misunderstanding of the manner in which God works out his plan and purpose. It's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of divine sovereignty. The truth of the matter is that God uses our prayers to accomplish his foreordained plan and will. He incorporates our prayers into his work. And that's why the devil hates the prayers of Christians. The devil works hard and sometimes with even great success when people lack prayer, when our lives lack prayer. And it's not that hard for us to find excuses, is it, not to pray, because we're, we're way too busy. You got up way too late in the morning, and you have to rush off to work, so you don't have time to, to eat. No, we don't have time to pray. Too busy for family devotions, too tired to pray at night, and so we skip it once again. And Satan loves it when we come up with excuses like that. There's nothing that makes him more afraid than prayer because he knows that when we pray, we are asking for God's power to be at work in our lives and against him. And so he opposes us all the more. He knows that when we pray, we become supernaturally empowered. And so what is he afraid of? He is afraid that we would get serious about prayer. He's not too worried if we come to church without praying. He's not too worried if we prepare sermons without prayer. He's not too worried if our family life is not surrounded by prayer. He's not very worried if the deacons do their work without prayer, and the elders too. Why? Because the devil knows that there's all kinds of pitfalls and temptations and worldly concerns that can drag us down and get us off track and make our life run off the rails. Unless, of course, we get serious about prayer. You see, congregation, we need prayer to protect us from those pitfalls. And we need prayer to protect us from our own sinful nature. And from our own weakness. From the lack of power that we have without God's power. And prayer, then, congregation, shows that we are truly thankful to God for His power in our lives. Your prayers for the power of God 
indicate that you don't take salvation for granted. And your prayers for the power of God indicate that you want to be sanctified and empowered by His Spirit to love and serve Him. God gives His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask Him for these things and thank Him for them. Prayer is God's gift to you so that you can grow in sanctification, in faith, in holiness, in obedience, in love. Well, then let's examine the manner of prayer. In the book of Acts, we discover that the early church was a praying church. They were serious about prayer. In Acts 1, we read that when the disciples returned to Jerusalem from Mount From the Mount of Olives, they all with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So they joined together in prayer. Notice that they all did this. They did this with one accord. They were all of one mind. And the way they came in prayer to God was on the strength of his command and his promise. You can read at the end of the Gospel of Luke that Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem until he had poured out his Holy Spirit upon them. That's also implied in in verse 8 of Acts 1, which we read together. So, what did they say to each other? It's clear, we must not leave Jerusalem, and since he has made this promise and issued this command, we are going to submit to his will, and we are going to pray then on the basis of what he promised us. Well, congregation, what does that mean? That implies that God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. In fact, the fact that God makes a promise is not a reason not to pray. In fact, it's the other way around. God's promises are precisely the reasons for our prayers. There are people who claim that if you have enough faith, you can ask the Lord for anything and he will give you whatever you ask for. The congregation, that's the wrong way to think about prayer because when you pray that way, you are presuming upon God and not praying in faith. What's the difference? Well, praying in faith is praying according to the promises of God. Praying in faith is saying to the Lord, Lord, you have promised in your word that that you will give peace to everyone who waits upon you. So, Lord, give me that peace. I am in great difficulty. I'm in a heap of trouble and I can't figure out what's going on and I can't find a way out. Lord, grant me peace in my circumstances. Philippians chapter 4, that's how he commands us to pray. We may come to him in prayer in our fears and anxieties. We may ask according to his promises and we may pray this in faith, but we may not presume upon him. We may not... Test him with presumptuous requests. That's what we mean when we confess in question and answer 117 that we must call upon the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word. And that we must pray for all that he has commanded us to pray. See, we, we may not pray for more than what we're allowed to pray for. Let's go to another example, chapter 4 in Acts. We read that together as well. Peter and John had been arrested and they had been hauled before the Sanhedrin. They had 
it had been demanded of them that they should not pray or preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. But then they refused to do that. But then when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported all of this to them and what the chief priests had said to them. And what was their response? You see that in verse 24. They turned immediately to the Lord in prayer. They lifted their voices together to God and they prayed. And notice how they prayed. How did they start that prayer? Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth. And who through the mouth of our father David spoke by the Holy Spirit. So they prayed according to how God had revealed himself. First of all as creator of heaven and earth. But also how he had revealed himself in his word in the Bible. The God of revelation, the God who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, spoke by the Holy Spirit. And then, then in verse 28, they are referring to those who crucified the Lord Jesus. And look how they refer to them. They refer to them as men whom God had determined and purposed for this very thing. And so, who are they praying to? The God of creation, the God of revelation, the God who is sovereign over history. He spoke, he made, and he caused it to happen. And then once they have established who God is, then they come to him with their requests and supplications. Well, congregation, that is how it is, must be with us too. Unless we first understand who God is, how can we come to him with requests? And if we do not understand the nature of God, how can we ask anything of him in confidence? Again, that's why we confess what we confess in question and answer 117. The disciples, they understood this too. And that's why they began their prayer in this way. It clarified for them who God is. It kept, kept them humble too as they made those requests. Praying in this manner reminds us of who we are and who God is. And when they prayed, then after that, verse 29, they became more specific. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. But notice that they did not make a specific request as to how the Lord should deal with those threats. They didn't ask the Lord to stop those threats or to make make it easier for us to handle the situation. They simply asked the Lord, Lord, will you look upon this? Will you consider their threats? In other words, Lord, you see what's happening. Will you deal with this according to your sovereign good pleasure? And then they went on. Enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They had just had a very difficult experience. They had been arrested and threatened, and warned. And they came back to the congregation, and what do they do? They get together and they pray. They acknowledge that the Lord is the God of creation, the God of revelation, the God of history, and then they humbly pray. You could sum up their prayer this way. Lord, consider our situation and enable us and show your power. Lord, consider our situation, enable us, And show your power. And what happened? 
after they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So God shook the place. One commentator points out that it's noteworthy that it was not the people who were shaking. There have been many people in the history of New Testament times, also today, who place a lot of emphasis on being shaken by the Holy Spirit. But you can't prove definitively that that, that is what's happening, right? Or if whether or not it's caused by one's own imagination. But God did not shake the people. He shook the building. There's no mistaking about why that happens. That's the power of God. Because they could not have shaken the building. And so God showed them his power. He filled them with his spirit and he enabled them to speak boldly. And we might ask ourselves, well, is that something that we should expect too in answer to our prayers? Well, no, congregation. This passage describes what happened. But it's not a prescriptive formula for every prayer the church prays. But there is a principle here that we can apply to ourselves. First of all, the church, the early church was a praying church. And when they prayed, it's clear they came together often to pray. And they prayed with one accord, in unity, in unity of mind and spirit. And they prayed consistently. And they prayed in the light of who God is. And they prayed on the basis of his promises. And then God answered their prayer by shaking that building they were in and filling them with power of the Holy Spirit. So congregation, there is every reason for us to come together and pray as well. And to pray for the power of God and the Spirit of God. And to pray for His Word to go out so that it would be preached and spoken boldly. And to pray for Him to show His power. And in chapter 5 we read about how God answered their prayers by causing many signs and wonders to be performed by the apostles. Evidence that prayer is effective. That's our third point. And there's more examples in the book of Acts about that. Examples of this kind of prayer and God's answer to prayer. In chapter 12, for example, when the apostle Peter was in prison, the church prayed for his release. And God sent an angel to release or save Peter from prison. Notice the church simply prayed for Peter. They didn't pray for the death of Herod, who was persecuting the church, who had just beheaded James, the brother of John. They simply prayed for Peter. And God God gave Peter peace. He was chained. He was sleeping between two soldiers, two guards, and he slept. His fellow apostles had, one of his fellow apostles had just lost his head. But Peter could sleep. How is that possible? Only because he rested in the sovereignty of God. He believed in the sovereignty of his God. And the Lord granted him peace in those circumstances. And while the church prayed, Peter slept. And then an angel came to rescue him. And at first Peter wasn't even sure if it was real. He wasn't know if he was dreaming or awake. But then when he was awake, he went straight to his fellow believers. He went to the house of Mary because he knew they would be together there praying. But they didn't believe it was him. He knocked on the door. They thought it was his ghost. They had prayed for Peter. They had asked the Lord to look upon their circumstances. 
But when the Lord gave them an answer, they responded in unbelief. They weren't expecting the Lord to answer their prayer in this way. So they didn't believe what happened. And that happens to us too sometimes, isn't it? We don't expect the Lord's answer in a certain way. And then we sometimes don't believe that that is the answer to our prayer. But the prayer of the church congregation is effective. And God answers prayer in a way that we don't often expect or count on. And why is that? Is that perhaps because our expectations are often limited to the here and the now? To our material needs? To our physical needs, our emotional needs? What if our expectations were more in line with what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because look at what you get next in Acts chapter 12. The death of Herod. And the chapter ends with these words, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So the story began with the power and authority of Herod. He persecutes the church. He beheads James. And it ends with Peter in prison and then escaping from prison and Herod dying from a terrible disease eaten by worms. And the word of God increases and spreads. So, brothers and sisters, do you buy this message? Do you believe in the power and effectiveness of prayer? When we look around us, we see a lot of power in the world, don't we? The power of sin is horrible. We see the power of governments who hate Christianity, the power of the media in which Christianity is mocked, Christianity is slandered in the press. Christians have very little influence in the world. Those who wield power in in the press and in the government are often people who hate God and his church. And the people who want to promote evil are the ones who have the ear of those who are in power. They are a force to be reckoned with. So what can we do? Are we ready to give up on the power of God? All too often we are. And that's because all too often we are inward looking. And our, our vision is narrow. When we pray, congregation, when we pray, are we expecting the word of God to increase? Or are we hoping that God will just improve our circumstances? Are we expecting God to display his power through his holy servant, Jesus? Or are we, is all our emphasis on asking God to change our personal situation? Is our focus on the kingdom of God or on our, on our own little world? And if our focus is too narrow, are we even able to recognize how God displays his power? And when he answers our prayers, the book of Acts shows us that the early church was a praying church and that their prayers were effective. Well, what's the result of those kinds of prayers? What is it that united the early church? It is the amazing grace of God. 
And through the power of prayer, the Lord brought about Pentecost. Through the power of prayer, the word of God spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to Rome and to the ends of the earth. Through the power of prayer, he enables his disciples to speak of Christ and to do it with boldness. Through the power of prayer, the church grows. And you can read that throughout the book of Acts. How was the Holy Spirit poured out on the church? Through the power of prayer. Why did that house shake? As an answer to prayer. How was Peter freed from prison? As an answer to prayer. How was Cornelius the centurion converted? Or Lydia? Or the Philippian jailer? Through the power of prayer. How are people today converted? And brought to their knees before the throne of grace? Through the power of prayer. That's what prayer accomplishes, congregation. And where should we expect to see that power most clearly and forcefully displayed and exercised? I think you all know the answer. Right here. In church, amongst the people of God. We read in James chapter 5, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he too was a sinful man. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. What does this mean? Does it mean that Elijah was such a holy person that God had no choice but to answer his prayer? No. He was no more free from sinful passions than we are. Must we understand then that God would not have carried out his plans if Elijah had not prayed? No, that's not the answer either. But it means that Elijah prayed according to God's plan, and God worked Elijah's prayer into his plan. He incorporated it into his sovereign plan. And the Lord was pleased to listen to this finite and sinful prophet in order to accomplish his plan. He uses our prayers, congregation, even though we are finite and sinful people too. Because he made us righteous in Christ. Does it make sense to human logic that the sovereign God can use our prayers and incorporate them into his sovereign plan, his predetermined plan, and accomplish his will even using our prayers? We can't explain, I can't explain that, but it's true. How does it fit together? I don't know, but somehow God puts these together. So then, brothers and sisters, don't we want to be part of that? Are we a praying church? Are we committed to prayer on our own, in our families, in the church? I know there's a lot of prayer that happens on Sunday in our homes, at Bible study. But are we deliberate in our prayers? Do most of our prayers consist of requests about our own needs or about the advancement of the kingdom of God? Do we pray? Do we concentrate on the business of the kingdom? And when we get together as families, as friends, in our Bible study meetings, wherever, 
Do we make prayer an integral part of our meeting together? Or is it something that we need to get out of the way so that we can get on with the business of the meeting or get on with our meal or whatever it else is that we think is maybe more important? Maybe we don't think that way, but sometimes we act that way. And do we pray for the advancement of God's kingdom? Do we ask him, Lord, consider our circumstances. Look and consider, O Lord, the circumstances of our church and of our nation. And then do we ask him to increase his word and his kingdom and to display his glory? One of the greatest dangers for the church and for Christians is that we become very effective in doing secondary things and very ineffective in prayer. Perhaps it would be good to discuss these things amongst yourselves, in your families, and in your Bible study groups, when you get together with friends. How can we, not only as individual Christians, but as congregation, become more effective in prayer and in all the things that pertain to the kingdom of God? Well, let us make it our resolve that we would be a congregation through which the word of God goes forth powerfully and through which God reveals his power. So let's make it our goal to be a praying people. Amen.